0: Hi, I'm D.W. from Houston.
1: Hi, I'm Kristen from San Francisco.
0: Hi,
2: I'm Graham from Vancouver, Canada.
0: Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is produced
3: independently and supported by listeners like you and me.
2: You should support the show like I did. It's
4: easy. Just visit MaximumFun.org slash donate. Yes.
3: I'm Jesse Thorne. There's something really to be said, and I say this as someone who fell into this category, for being a, a sissy heterosexual in high school it Absolutely. can really work out for you
5: well i mean i think you're um, you're seen as non-threatening by females and um and as long as you're in an environment where you're not seen as threatening by males you can really uh you can really thrive
3: it depends on your ability to to sort of make the pivot so to speak
5: um you mean the pivot from friendship to to romance yeah well you just got to pounce <laughs> <laughs> um, you know <laughs> And then, you know, you, you can't pounce so much That you get a reputa- reputation as a pouncer <laughs> You just gotta pounce Enough
3: Me and Daniel Handler Romantics at heart This week on Bullseye <laughs> On this week's show Daniel Handler delves into his memories of young love To pen the novel Why We Broke Up The twist? He writes from the girls' perspective. And the Squar brothers, from performing as identical twins to broadening their sports nerd fan base. Plus, I suggest the Canadian sitcom The Newsroom, and composer Nico Muley shares the song that changed his life. Stick around for Bullseye. Let's go! It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Every week, we turn to some of our favorite culture critics for recommendations in the world of pop culture. This week, we turn to Genevieve Kosky, the assistant editor of the A.V. Club, and Josh Modell, the A.V. Club's general manager, who join us from their offices in Chicago to give us some, well, some all-time favorites. Uh, Josh, why don't we start with you? Uh, You chose Fiona Apple's When the Pawn... From nineteen ninety-nine, uh let's take a little bit of a listen to a song from the record.
4: When I think of it, my fingers turn a fix. I
1: never did anything with you. Man. But no matter what I try, you'll be me with your bitter lies. So call me crazy, hold me down, make me cry, get off now, baby it. It won't be long till you be lying, live in your
4: own hands.
3: Fiona Apple has had this really I don't know how would you describe it a crazy bouncing all over the place good news bad news type of career but she has retained a passionate fan base because of records like this one Um, what does this what does this album mean to you
6: that's a tough question so I'll answer a different question and say (laughs) I just think it's a really excellent album by a a person who's kind of in a way, was very critically underrated at the time. Um, her first record came out, and she did this sexy video, and uh, was kind of uh, written off in a way as as you know trying to be a sex symbol or whatever, and then add on top of that the the sort of impression that she gives us that she's pretty crazy and then doesn't put out records uh, but every five years.
2: And then makes some 90-word album titles. Yeah,
6: Yeah, the new one that's coming out sometime this year has something like 23 words in the title.
3: The actual full album title, if I may, is When the Pawn Hits the Conflict, He Thinks Like a King, What He Knows throws the blows when he goes to the fight and he'll win the whole thing for he enters the ring there's no body to batter when your mind is your might so when you go so low you hold your own hand and remember the depth that is the greatest of heights and if you know where you stand then you know where to land and if you fall it won't matter because you'll
6: know that you're right in a way that's sort of indicative of what i'm talking about and that she kind of distracts from her own music like she gives ammunition to people to say well i'm not gonna listen to that stupid album that's got a 99 word title but luckily she's got the goods to back it up
3: genevieve let's talk about another record album this one a badly broken code by uh the minneapolis based um i don't know spoken word artist (laughs) semi-rapper Dessa. It was her first record It came out a couple of years ago And we're going to start by Taking a listen to a clip from a song Called Mindshaft 2 You
1: hung up
6: the phone You listened to the dial tone And you stared
2: at the stove Until the beeping started You read some love letters Some threats And some you couldn't tell apart That you keep under the bed At the apartment Then you did what he asked you to do You opened your heart up Right there On a napkin on the carpet Part of it was frostbit. But you've always been a smart kid Could still distinguish the blood Blackest pitch Vows have gone stiff
3: so what speaks to you so strongly about this album, Genevieve?
2: Dessa, as you said, she came up as a spoken word artist. Um, and actually, you know, I think it's fair to call her a singer-rapper at this point, um, but she does have a very unusual kind of spoken word-influenced flow that uh, when I first heard the album actually kind of put me off of it. But her lyrics are just so fantastic, and um, it's an album that I I felt kind of weird picking an album that's only two years old and calling it an all-time classic, but I've literally listened to this album at least once a week for the last two years, and I I hear something new every time, like picking out a line or or a different interpretation of, of a line, and it's I, maybe the reason this album sticks out is just because I engage with the lyrical content so much more than I usually would.
3: What are the themes there that, that you connect with?
2: It's one of those uh, albums where I feel like every song I can kind of relate to on some level. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, that happened to me. That, that, that's a perfect, that, that, that couple is a perfect encapsulation of that thing that happened to me once, you know.
3: I feel that same way about uh, the Ghetto Boys.
2: <laughs> they're, they're very similar artists in that regard.
3: Well, uh, Josh, Genevieve, thank you so much for uh, sharing your picks with us.
2: Thank you.
6: Can I just say real gangsta ass Jesse don't flex stuff because real gangsta ass Jesse know he got them?
3: Josh Modell is the general manager of the AV Club. He recommends Fiona Apples, When the Pawn, etc., etc. Genevieve Kosky is the assistant editor. She recommends Dessa's A Badly Broken Code. You can find The A.V. Club in the pages of The Onion online at avclub.com, and you can check out their podcast, Reasonable Discussion. I used
2: to sing on the roof outside my window sill, and I can open some ghosts names later, figures. So. And here you are, a sick figure and a busted grin, still ignorant of all the trouble I'm with Gennison. Hoping we could trade just for tonight, like I could borrow your heart and I could leave you mine. It's not much for collateral.
3: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. If you were a teenager, which I'm guessing you were at some point, if you're not one now, you were probably at some point in love. And if you were in love as a teenager, you were probably out of love at some point, too. It's that falling apart of love that's at the center of Daniel Handler's new novel, Why We Broke Up. It's uh, a first person letter. What's that? Second person? Is that second person when you're writing a letter about something that happened to you?
5: It is second person.
3: Oh, jeez, Louise! It's a second person. Well, I mean,
5: it's first person directed to a second person, so I don't know if it really counts as second person or first person.
3: Oh, geez. We're going to get letters, Daniel Handler.
5: (laughs) Um, That's true. Yes. Please direct your comments, listeners, to Daniel Handler, (laughs) care of Barack Obama, 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue, Washington, D.C.
3: Anyway, his his book uh, takes the form of a a series of uh, letters uh, uh, written by a teenage girl to her erstwhile beau. Uh, accompanied by paintings of objects sent in a box. The paintings are by Myra Kalman, a a past guest on this show. They're absolutely beautiful. If Daniel Handler's name sounds familiar and it's not for his work under his own name, he's also also a celebrated and best-selling author under the pen name The Lemony Snicket, um, his best-selling books there have been turned into movies and sold a bajillion copies, and he has appeared around the world as the Lemony Snicket's uh, assistant or um, representative. Uh, Daniel Handler, welcome to Bullseye.
5: Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here.
3: This book reminded me that I don't remember as much as I'd like to about high school how, how close are you do you
5: think that's probably a mercy
3: <laughs> i don't know like I, I i had a great high school experience f- for the most part but i i genuinely i feel bad about it i mean i'm not i'm i'm not even especially old but i i lose touch with things very quickly and i feel sort of sad about it and i wonder how close you are to your uh, your high school experience
5: uh too close clearly um <laughs> I mean, I, for the most part, had a marvelous time in high school, but certainly those years made a huge impression on me. Um, I still have the old gang from high school. We're all close and keep in touch. And um, I mean, for instance, in the promotional materials for this book, it says that I was dumped at least three times in high school. And when that was read out loud on a radio program, my friend from high school called me and said, it's at least five times. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, I mean, those years have, yeah, have left a lasting impression. And um, I never thought of it as really a blessing. I always assumed it was a curse that I could remember things from that time quite well.
3: Tell tell me a little bit about yourself in high school, because I think you're you're two protagonists in this book. Um, Min, the voice of the book, the girl is a sort of... um, Uh, she is forever battling uh the descriptor artsy yeah and her boyfriend is uh, a jock i mean he is a bright jock he's he's not a he's not a meathead um but he is he has that sort of he has that sort of blithe jockey quality where everything works out for him yeah um what were you like in high school
5: Um, I was, well, I had the privilege of attending an academic high school here in San Francisco. So, um, which I think was- You went to Lowell, right? I went to Lowell High School, indeed. And so it wasn't a kind of a sink or swim cesspool of violence that one often reads about in high schools. Um, there wasn't, um, any typical bullying. And so a kind of, um, sissy heterosexual such as myself could do pretty well, um, and um, and I did pretty well. I was artsy. I wouldn't have apologized about being artsy. Um, and I had friends. And I mean, we were very, very pretentious. We enjoyed going to cafes, which in the pre-Starbucks era was in and of itself an artsy thing to do. And we watched a lot of films that I don't even understand now when I see them. <laughs> And we listened to a lot of so-called difficult music. And, um, you know, we were small incestuous groups and we developed very high passionate crushes on one another and such. And I wanted to be a writer the whole time I wanted to be a writer.
3: There's something really to be said, and I say this as someone who fell into this category, for being a a sissy heterosexual in high school. It can really work out for you.
5: Well, I mean, I think you're um you're seen as non-threatening by females and um and as long as you're in an environment where you're not seen as threatening by males, you can really uh you can really thrive.
3: It depends on your ability to to sort of make the pivot, so to speak.
5: Um you mean the pivot from friendship to to romance? Yeah. Well, you just got to pounce. <laughs> Um, you know, and then you know you you can't pounce so much that you get a reput- reputation as a pouncer. <laughs> you just gotta pounce enough.
3: You're now describing something that that sounds inappropriate and upsetting.
5: <laughs> I'm, so- I'm sorry. Do you need to talk this over with your wife? Is that, is that <laughs> where this is going?
3: I, I'm I'm a little bit not sure about this pouncing thing that you're working over.
5: Oh, well, I'm not working over it now. I've been married to a woman forever and ever. But um, but in high school, yeah, you're friends with someone and you're friends with someone and you go to a movie and you both agree it's very significant and then you walk across the Golden Gate Bridge and the fog is covering the city with mystery and allure and if you don't make a move then, then you're going to be friends forever.
3: There's this thing about romance in high school where it is almost exhaustingly important. I mean everything in high school is exhaustingly important, right? But
5: well, it's either exhaustingly important or not even worth mentioning. There's yeah, certainly not anything in between, I think, for most people in high school.
3: Do you find it do you find it e- easy to recall that level of I don't know that level of e- emotional intensity?
5: Um, I think I do. I think it comes naturally to me. I mean, I think my memories of high school, for whatever reason, are pretty clear. And then also, I'm in a field that requires a certain amount of obsession to do well. Um, if you're a, a novelist, it means you have to take a very, very strong interest in the story you're telling, past all reason, really. And um, And so I think I can relate to that kind of love affair, because I have it with books that I read, and I have it with things that I'm researching and projects I'm working on. Um, and I think that many people um, are encouraged as they grow older to um, to have a certain amount of disassociation from um, something. You're not supposed to think about something all the time. You're supposed to think about a bunch of things for a short period of time. And um, I, luckily, I'm in a profession where that's not actually encouraged. You're encouraged to be a little obsessive.
3: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Daniel Handler. He's the author of Why We Broke Up. The novel takes the form of a letter written by a high school girl to her first love. Handler also wrote a series of unfortunate events under the pen name Lemony Snicket. Did you happen to bring a copy of your book with you? I didn't, but um, there's
5: a nice woman from Little Brown now who's rushing into the room with one.
3: So I'm going to ask you to read this little description. It's on page 80 of your book. Uh, This is Min describing uh, a day at her high school.
5: Oh, yeah. I've read that out loud at various um, uh, kind of reading series, mostly in bars. And um, it's something to read that description of a typical high school day. And it starts with people smiling in recognition. And by the end of it, people are generally ordering another round. (laughs) Okay, here it is. Because the day it was school. It was the bells too loud or rattly and broken speakers that would never get fixed. It was the bad floors squeaky and footprinted and the bang of lockers. It was writing my name in the upper right-hand corner of the paper or Mr. Nelson would automatically deduct five points, and in the upper left-hand corner of the paper, Mr. Peters would deduct three. It was the pen just giving up midway and scratching invisible ink scars on the paper or suiciding the leak on my hand and trying to remember if I touched my face recently and am I a ballpoint coal miter on my cheeks and chin. It was boys in a fight by the garbage cans for whatever reason, not my friends, not my crowd, my old locker partner crying about it on the bench I sat on freshman year with a gang I barely see anymore. Quizzes, pop quizzes, switching identities during attendance when there's a sub, anything to pass time, more bells. It was the principal on the intercom, two whole minutes of ambient hum and shuffling, and then a very clear, that's on, Dave, and it clicking off. It was a table selling croissants for French club knocked over by Billy Keeger like always, and the strawberry jam a sticky stain on the ground for three days before anyone cleaned it. Old trophies in a box, a plaque with this year's names waiting to be filled in on the tag, blank and coffin-shaped. It was the deep daydream in waking up with a teacher wanting an answer and refusing to repeat the question. Another bell, the announcement, ignore that bell, and Nelson scowling, he said ignore it to people zipping backpacks. It was the paperwork and homeroom stapled together wrong so everyone has to rotate them to fill them out. It was the bolts and tryouts for the school play, the banners with the big game Friday and then the big banner stolen and the announcement to rat someone out if anyone knew anything. It was Jen and Tim breaking up, Skyler getting his car taken away, the rumor that Angela was pregnant, but then the counter-rumor, no, it's the flu, everyone throws up with the flu. It was the days the sun wasn't even trying to get out of the clouds and be nice for once in its starry life. It was wet grass, damp hems, the wrong socks I forgot to throw out and so now found myself wearing, the sneaky leaf falling from my hair where it had nested for hours to surely someone's delight. Serena getting her period and not having anything for it like always, scrounging from girls she didn't even know in the bathrooms during second. Big game Friday, go beavers, beat them beavers, the dirty joke so boring to everyone but freshman and Kyle happily. Choir tryouts, three girls selling knitting to help people in a hurricane. It was the library having nothing to offer no matter what needed looking up. It was fifth period, sixth, seventh, clock watching and cheating on tests just because why not? It was suddenly being hungry, tired, hot, furious, so unbelievably startling sad. Fourth period, how could it only be fourth, is what it was. Hester Prynne, Agamemnon, John Quincy Adams, distance times rate equals something, lowest common whatever, the radius, the metaphor, the free market. Someone's red sweater, someone's open folder. It was wondering how someone could lose a shoe, just one shoe, and not see it when it was hopeful on the windowsill for weeks. Call this number on the bulletin board. Call if you've been abused, if you want to kill yourself, if you want to go to Austria this summer with the other losers in the picture. It was strive in bad letters on a fading background. Wet paint on a dry floor. Big game Friday. We need your spirit. Give us your spirit. Locker combinations, vending machines, hooking up, cutting class, the secrets of smoking and headphones and the rum in a soda bottle with mints to cover the breath, that one sickly boy with thick glasses and an electronic wheelchair— Thank God I'm not him or the neck brace or the rash or the orthodontics or that drunk dad who showed up at a dance to hit her across the face or that poor creature who someone needs to tell you smell. Fix it or it will never, never, never will it get better for you. The days were all day, every day. Get a grade, take a note, put something on, put somebody down, cut open a frog and see if it's like this picture of a frog cut open. But at night, the nights were you, finally on the phone with you, ed my happy thing the best part
3: one of the things about high school is that it is this combination of having agency and not having agency in really weird and arbitrary combinations and being sort of swept up in things that are like rivers like some of the pros in in your description of high school and being kind of caught up in hurry up and waits that you have no power over is a very odd thing to be in that. It is quite a relief to get out of because at least, you know, that if you mess up, it's just your fault and you just have to deal with it.
5: (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think for the most part, high school is designed, it seems to be the worst possible scenario for the people in it. Um, <laughs> but frankly, I don't know really what would be better given the scenario one's in in adolescence. But certainly, I mean, whenever I visit a high school, I think that if there were adults in an office building... And every 40 minutes, a bell rang, and they had to run across to the opposite end of the office building and then think very hard about something completely different from the thing they were told to think very hard about in the last 40 minutes. No adult would work there. They would say, this is complete madness. I can't do a whole lot of algebra and then run across this building and get yelled at if I'm late and then have someone say, we're now thinking about Billy Budd, and that's all we're thinking about. We're not thinking about algebra that you just had to think about very hard and and that 's in fact what we p- put adolescence in, even with the knowledge that adolescent brains and bodies are exactly the wrong kind of brains and bodies to have that kind of thing go on and yet by the same token i don't i mean i'm um, I'm not an advocate of um various experimental education programs that i 've visited and taken notes on um it's a tough time i mean i I'm, my hat is off to anyone who makes it through adolescence
3: for a little while my brother when he was in high school (laughs) went to one of those schools it's like an anarchist school where well it's like a hyper democratic school where um all of the students vote on everything yeah
5: i visited some of those schools
3: it was a disaster yeah i mean (laughs) it was a total unmitigated disaster. Well, I mean,
5: who on earth thinks town hall meetings ought to go on for all day long? You know, <laughs> and that's, that's kind of what those schools are. I mean, if anything, I think you can emerge from a school thinking wherever I want to live, I want there not to be a democracy. I would, <laughs> I would rather live under a king than have any more of this.
3: Stick around to hear about Daniel Handler's worst high school breakup. It's Bullseye from MaximumFun.org and PRI. Public Radio International.
1: Production of Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog Put This On, presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every 60 days. More information at PutThisOn.com. And by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at Ask.Metafilter.com.
3: This episode of Bullseye is made possible by you. And by IFC, Comedy Bang Bang, Friday nights at 10, 9 Central. This week, Zach Galifianakis with Scott Ackerman. More info at IFC.com. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Daniel Handler. He's the author of Why We Broke Up. The novel takes the form of a letter written by a high school girl to her first love. The book also includes illustrations of different objects collected over the course of the relationship. Stuff like movie tickets, notes, a pair of earrings. Those illustrations are by the artist Myra Kalman. I was surprised that you to read that you started with the objects in your collaboration with Myra Kalman. Um, tell me a little bit about how, how this sort of structure of the book came about.
5: Well, um, my, I was a fan of Myra's forever and, um, I, um, I, I somewhat cynically cultivated a friendship with her. I had, I met her and cultivated a friendship with her in order to bamboozle her into working with me because I was such a big <laughs> fan. Um, and we did a picture book together, um, published under Lemony Snicket's name called 13 Words. And that was a more traditional collaboration in which I wrote a manuscript and I gave it to Myra and she agreed to illustrate it. Um, When we decided to work on something else, uh, I said, well, well, let's start with you. Why don't you tell me what you want to paint? And I couldn't really imagine what Myra was going to tell me she wanted to paint because she paints so many strange and wondrous things. So uh, for all I knew, I was going to have to write a biography of Sigmund Freud or something. But instead she showed me various small, ordinary objects that she collected, that she keeps in drawers, rubber bands and bottle caps and matchbooks and all sorts of strange little items. And I started to think about what makes strange items look magical and luminous. And one is when they're painted by Myra Kalman, and the other is when they're infused with romantic memory. And from there, the idea of a long letter... Um, with all of these objects infused with romantic memory um, turning into a novel came it came into being.
3: Is that how you ended up writing from the perspective of uh, the girl and not the boy?
5: Well, I mean, I think <laughs> the easy answer is that in the case of the relationship between Min and Ed in the novel, if it, if it was written from the point of view of the boy, it would be about half a page long. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've been on this tour and sometimes people in line have been asking, are you going to write a novel that's from the point of view of Ed? And then I quickly write one on a post-it for them. <laughs> it, it usually says something like, who? Oh, her. <laughs> uh, um, so I think one is that Min Green is the character who is um, is full of romantic expression. And so it made sense for her to tell it.
3: It seems like there uh, there has been an explosion of... um. I guess the adjective is uh, quirky young women in media in the past 10 years or so. And they tend to feel like they are created from a very male perspective, a- at least to me. I mean, I- I'm a dude, so maybe I'm not the best judge of this. Right. But they've, they just, they, they tend to feel like just, just someone was like, well, what's the ultimate chick that, that me or, I don't know who would be a good example. Patton Oswalt would be into <laughs> um, Patton's awesome. He's been on the show several times. It's not intended as an insult to Patton. No, no, no of course. Um,
5: <laughs> I was just picturing an enormous fan of star Wars. That's all I can picture is a <laughs> girl for
3: Patton Oswalt. Um, well, you know, a girl that that's, that's really into movies. Um, and, and, and I wonder if you were—I I wonder if you were sort of worried about that trope and and sort of self-conscious about it.
5: Um, I don't think so. I was interested in um, in someone who would um, take their cues from culture, just because I think that's so much what what adolescence is. You know, I mean, by the time you're in sixth grade, the number of of pieces of culture you've consumed that are about relationships that are about how people meet and hook up and stay together or fight or break up or get over each other you know that entire narrative inside and out before you've had anything that can be construed as a relationship and i don't know how there would be another way to go about doing it and i think that um that min's story is a story of someone who's consumed so many romantic pieces of culture that she's trying for a romance that turns out to be impossible in her situation.
3: There's also an odd relationship between romance as it is represented in the real world as it is represented in in fiction and romance as it functions especially in the contemporary real world. I mean, I know that all the girls that I dated when I was in high school, like I don't really remember I don't even really remember asking any of them out. <laughs> we certainly never went to any sock hops or anything.
5: You just hung out and pounced? Is that what you're saying?
3: Yeah, pretty much.
5: (laughs) Um, Well, I was a romantic. Yeah. I I mean, I, but I mean, I think, you know, my notion of romance was fueled by a notion of what girls might want, which was fueled by a notion of pieces of culture that I was seeing. And um, I, you know, one date that I did, uh, I mean, I must have done it 20 times over the course of high school, was take some girl for a walk across the Golden Gate Bridge because it seemed to me that it was romantic and it is romantic, but I mean, it's hard to say when you're that young where the self-consciousness and, and aping of culture meets a genuine experience. Um, But I mean, I think it's, um, I think there's no other way to go about doing it.
3: I I recently drove across the Golden Gate Bridge. uh, I mean, a week ago, not even a week ago, three or four days ago, I drove across the Golden Gate Bridge. And as I was driving across the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, I, I literally said out to, uh, out loud to my wife man the golden gate bridge really delivers yeah it does i mean that, that golden gate bridge i mean it is awesome yeah
5: it's extremely well done
3: that's all i, I guess that's all i really have to say on <laughs> yeah, you'll the find golden no argument from
5: me you heard it here first npr listeners the golden gate bridge what a place
3: <laughs> it's it's amazing. They really... You know
5: where else? I mean, I don't mean to be a name dropper, but Paris, France. That's a hell of a town.
3: <laughs> I don't know if you've ever heard about this canyon in Arizona, but it is <laughs> yeah. mighty grand.
5: Jesse and I are co-hosting a show where we're presenting overlooked treasures. <laughs> Little hidden moments you might not have heard about.
3: <laughs> Tell me about your worst uh, breakup in high school.
5: Um... I Well, in ninth grade, uh, she called me while I was babysitting. You, you know, it was one of those things where you arrive in school and suddenly it's all off with your girlfriend. It, there's nothing and you tell yourself, oh, she's just in a bad mood or something. But every time you talk to her over the course of the school day, it's terrible. And then... Um, it was a Friday night, I think, and I, um, and I was babysitting, um, for this kid down the block, and then she called me, you know, she said, I'll call you later, and I said, oh, I'll be babysitting, so you have that number when I babysit, and, um, but knowing just the whole time playing with this kid and making him dinner and things like that, that later my girlfriend was going to call me and dump me because that was clearly what was going to happen. That's what I mostly remember. I remember chatting with the kid, waiting for him to go to bed, knowing that then the phone would ring and that then I would get dumped.
3: Daniel Handler, thank you so much for uh, taking the time to be on Bullseye. It was was really a pleasure.
5: Oh, my pleasure.
3: I appreciate your interest. Daniel Handler is the author of the novel Why We Broke Up, a collaboration with the artist Myra Kalman. He also writes books as Lemony Snicket, and he's got a new series of Lemony Snicket books called All the Wrong Questions kicking off later this year. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. Nico Muley is a different kind of classical composer. Sure, he went to Juilliard, and yes, he did premiere his work at the English National Opera last year. And of course, he's worked with Philip Glass. But on the other hand, he's collaborated with pop performers like Bjork. He's worked on arrangements for indie groups like Grizzly Bear. And he's been known to rhapsodize about the reality show Jersey Shore on his blog. Nico Muley says the song that changed his life is a piece by Steve Reich. It's called Music for 18 Musicians. Reich is an American composer. He's composed innovative, minimal music for decades and continues to release music today. Music for 18 Musicians was written in 1974 and was Reich's first stab at writing for a large ensemble. Muley, though, didn't hear the piece until the mid-90s when he bought the CD as a music student. He was 14.
0: I was sitting on the floor of my parents' house and... I I just remember sort of popping it in and, and, you know, it starts and you're immediately right there. There's kind of of no introductory material and no kind of... It's just, here is the world of this piece. There's this kind of outrageous, decadent bass clarinet thing. You just think, well, great, that's just excellent. It's kind of in its own world. It, it sort of outlines at the very beginning what it's what the tools are that it's, go, that it's going to be working with and then sticks with those. It's, a, it's an ensemble of, of amplified sort of strings and woodwinds and um, mallet instruments. It was the first time I realized that music could be fast and slow at the same time. There's this sense of the sort of textural language of the piece being very slowly shifting, sort of like a helicopter shot over over a landscape. sort of underused instrument, I would say, are are the vibraphones, which are used in this kind of structural way to indicate when the pattern will, will change. What's what's kind of gorgeous about music for musicians is there's really one instrument that comes in, um, and goes away, which is the, which is a, a pair of maracas, which is this kind of magical moment. But it's 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 a kind of genius thing, right? In this very lush texture, about halfway through, all of a sudden you have this you have these these little dry beans. And it was was something that that sort of felt like the exact right length. Um, It was sort of more of an experience than it was a piece. And then you you can sort of come up for air 56 minutes later or whatever it is. composer could function in a community in a sense, and it, it, the idea that you're not making these pieces of heroic narrative, but, but instead that what you're making is like this kind of thing that could only work with this enormous amount of cooperation that it required all these people to make this very, very beautiful thing the same thing you feel if you watch sort of six people operate a gigantic puppet or something it just felt like something sort of huge coming out of a, a, a bunch of small processes in a kind of beautiful way You know, it it, it was a completely life-altering thing because you, 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 or I hadn't realized that that there was music that was so clean and so ecstatic and so measured, but also wild and all all at the same time.
3: Nico Muley on the song that changed his life, Music for 18 Musicians by Steve Reich. You can find Nico Muley online at nicomuley.com. That's N-I-C-O-M-U-H-L-Y dot What happens if you type woman who had face into Google? Sure, you could go find out on your computer or you could wait and let your radio tell you. I think you should wait. I mean, I have a vested interest. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. This episode of Bullseye, supported by you and by IFC, presenting Comedy Bang Bang with Scott Ackerman Friday nights at 10, 9 central. Comedy so nice, they banged it twice. Hey, gang, Max FunCon East is already half full. If you want to come join us and our friends at WNYC in the Poconos for a weekend of fun and adventure. Yes, that's right. I said adventure. It's not true, but I said it. Then go to MaxFunCon.com to get your tickets now before they're all gone. MaxFunCon.com. Look, I'm not going to tell you who we have booked, but I will say that we have one person booked, a genuine legend who is the single MaxFunCon guest about whom I am most excited ever. MaxFunCon East is October 26th through 28th in the Poconos. It's Bullseye, I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests, Randy and Jason Sklar, are a stand-up comedy team, twin brothers from St. Louis, Missouri. They're well-known for their long-running ESPN classic series, Cheap Seats, and they host Sklarbro Country, a comedy podcast about sports. These days, the Sklars are cracking wise about statistics on a new History Channel show, the United Stats of America. And in case you didn't think these two were busy enough, the twins remain active stand-up performers. Here's a clip from their recent CD, Henderson's and Daughters.
4: Here's the thing. I think this is a litmus test for us to understand that we're actually getting older, because at this point in our lives, we would rather stay at a good hotel instead of a hip hotel. And that's the thing. We, I don't know if you guys have ever stayed at a really hip hotel. But like, we, it's a, such a hip hotel that it dares you to admit that it's a hotel, you know? <laughs> We were staying at this hotel in New York. We go. It's so hip. You go down in the lobby, there's, like, house music pumping. It's ridiculous. There's a huge plasma flat screen. 50-inch screen, and then the image is Adolf Hitler the devil behind the front desk. And it's like... Okay, all right, all right. Excuse me. Excuse me. Excuse me. I just need... A, I need... I need a wake-up call tomorrow morning Can I get a wake-up call at 8 a.m tomorrow morning Can I get another wake-up call at 8 10, 8 10, please and can, I, can, I, can I can I get a fluffy pillow too Because the ones that I got are too What does this have to do with the hotel I just want a fluffy pillow That's and two wake-up calls. <laughs> I don't need the Hitler imagery. Right. Or the Hitler remix. When I don't, uh, don't care for that.
3: There's something interesting about the dynamic of having two of you on stage, and I want to talk about that a little bit. Um, you are a double act and you are twins distinguished visually, basically just by the fact that one of you wears glasses. Yeah. Um, among other things, but
4: yes, but the main thing is that, yeah, uh,
3: functionally. (laughs) Sure. I'm Randy's wearing a baseball hat right now too, yeah, but, but. Uh, and you're wearing different clothes. Right. You don't wear matching outfits. I anymore. mean, sometimes you perform Take in care. sailor suits. Yes. But, um, Those are special uh, USO shows. So <laughs> <laughs> USO issue. very special. Now that they've repealed, don't ask, don't tell. That's yeah. correct. So uh, I, I, I want to ask you a little bit about that and how you developed the style that you perform in, because There are sort of classic double-axe styles, and you don't do those things. You are not the Smothers Brothers. Mm -hmm. Um, Did you ever try being the Smothers Brothers? I don't think we ever... We couldn't.
4: We couldn't do that. I don't think we could do that. Because
3: you're both dumb.
1: Right. Yes,
4: where we both play are the dumb ones. And, I, yeah. and our mom liked the Smothers Brothers best. <laughs> Is that bad? Yeah, Preferred them to us. <laughs> uh, it's always been a very <laughs> – <laughs> so, But, but what's, fun, <laughs> what's funny about it for us – I think what, that's the only conscious decision we've ever made was to not be like other – Duos that we've seen. I think other teams. We were this weird entity of this this storytelling two headed monster that kind of we enjoyed the same things and sometimes like double teaming from the same side of a point. Uh, And I think it's only recently that we fully understood that what we also have is the ability to and we love acting, so we also have the ability to play scenes out. We have bits in our stand up where we you know go into this whole thing of fairy tales about. Just not fully buying the third act of like Snow White, you know, and reading those stories to our kids. It all comes from the truth of reading those stories to our kids. And my daughter really likes fairy tales, and it made me question: How are these stories standing the test of time? It's the worst writing. It's so lazy. The fact that fee-fi-fo-fum, I smell the blood of an English man doesn't rhyme, and yet you made up the words fififo fo" and "fum." To me, blows my mind. We're like, how how How's did that I get? We were like, something else is at work here. Yeah, right? I bet the Brothers Grimm got a lot of creative like notes from their publishers throughout the whole process, and they're like, you know what? F- this, I don't care if this doesn't rhyme. We're drawing a line in the sand. Try to make us change it, and you know the publishers tried to do that. Like in the 11th hour, they're still kissing these guys' ass, trying to get them to change. They're like, Brothers Grimm, you guys, we love this story. Who is a genius? Who comes up with this you a too. beanstalk that grows in one day? What? Magic beans? That's genius. A goose that golden eggs? Come on. Con. The merchandising possibilities it's, are amazing. It's smart marketing. It's marketing. We just came up with a we word. We just made up a we word. just came up with You are. I have one note. It's not even a note. It's not even a thought. To say it's a thought is to make too big of a deal out of nothing. Here's the bad version. Don't do this, but do something exactly like it. fee fi fan <laughs> I smell the blood of an English man. We imagine the Brothers Grimm sitting across the desk. They're like, you write it. You do okay, it. if you're so smart.
3: It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guests are Jason and Randy Sklar. Their latest stand-up comedy album is called Henderson's and Daughters. You can see them exploring statistics on their new History Channel show, United Stats of America. You're- Sports has never been a huge part of your act. But sports has always been a has often been a huge part of your career. Mm-hmm. Um, I think because uh, uh, "cheap seats" your ESPN classic show was uh, was your big break uh, may still be the thing that you're best known for. Yeah, um, and uh, and I think it's interesting that in recent years you have drawn those two things closer and closer together. Um, and I wonder if that's, like, self-conscious. If you're – part of your thing is, like, we want to bring the sports stuff and the alt-comedy stuff into one thing rather than having it feel like parallel
4: tracks. Well, I mean, I don't know if you can't – there's a point at which they won't go – it's like two magnets pushing <laughs> against each other and they just won't go that way. What we try to do is say with our podcast that and, – and Patton Oswalt's a great guest to have on the podcast because he – Understands this as a nerd of other things like comic books and movies and stuff like that. He's like, there is no difference between the sports nerd and the co- and the comic book nerd and the comedy nerd and this. You, it's all nerddom, but in different ways. And so that's where we try and and so we try and say the thing is we can't assume that an alternative audience knows too much. Like there's a joke that we tell in our act about. Uh, our friend Morgan Murphy, who's a very funny comedian, asked us once in a funny way, and I just love this joke. Like She said, did you guys – did you take 9-11 harder than most people because, because you're, you're twins? <laughs> I was like, it's a great question. And I was like, OK. Well, to be honest with you, there was one moment on 9-12-2001 where I was like, oh my god, are we next? And, and then the the sports nerd in us – Every time wants to then make this joke, and we do it on stage, but to a lot of times to just very little laughter – which is the, the sports nerd us says, and then that I like, called Hakeem Olajuwon and Ralph Sampson, and I was like, "Do not hang out together because they're going after <laughs> they're twins, they're, they're going, going after, after tw- towers." These are you guys two are the guys who, in the 1980s, played for the Houston Rockets, and they were called the Twin Towers. It just to us is like, <laughs> I was like, "You can hang out with Clyde Drexler, Drexler individually." Another <laughs> player from those teams, and we go that far, and so for us, there's something wonderful and to be able to kind of go that far. It's almost like someone like Patton making a silver surf. For joke or whatever, you know that like, or Brian or, or Brian Posehn making a deep metal jo- heavy metal joke, and right. it's like we don't care. I we're kind of at the point now where we can go to that place, and that's fine. Although we do realize we got this new show coming out on the History Channel. It's not about sports at all. It's more about statistics, even though statistics have a lot to do with sports. For us, we're like we're glad because it's kind of t- sending us out into a broader area where we're still trying to be very specifically our own brand of comedy. But to try and stay in that broad area, I think, is is good for us. We don't want to go so far down the road of sports in just sports. Tell
3: me about this History Channel show that you've got uh, coming up about statistics.
4: Yes. It's called the uh, United Stats of America. And it's about how statistics tell the story of why we are who we are at this moment, like it, each show starts with a statistic. One of the shows is uh, we used to be the tallest nation in the world until 1950, and now we're ninth. So what happened? We're behind Belgium. Um, what, oh, those Belgians! Those waffle Damn. eaters. Bastards. I won't even watch In Bruges. Uh, and I won't even eat my fries with mayonnaise. Um, it, it's pretty shocking and upsetting, but it's interesting, and it un, sort of unearths a ton of other stats about how we live, how we eat, how we work. And it ends up sort of being a sociological exploration of America using stats as the entry point. So that's an episode. We do one on time. We do one on space. We do one on death. We do one on what are the seven inventions that moved us around in this kind of population population shift? shifts. So it kind of is like a way to sort of look at the story of America through stats. And obviously, you know, they wanted a host for the show that could bring it to life and make it funny because stats on their own aren't necessarily that riveting. But it, it, it worked out great for us. We, I mean, the guy, they, we, we weren't even in the mix to, do, to audition for the show. And they, were, they had had a casting session in New York, and then they had one in L.A. And the guy from Left Right, it's the same company that did uh, This American Life for Showtime. Really quality, amazing production company. They care about making it look good. It looks really cool. Um, so there are great people working on it. The guy from Left Right Media was driving around to their casting session uh, or to a casting session and he heard us on NPR doing the little sports report that we do on the Madeline Brand Show here in, at KPCC in uh, Southern California and he was like this is exactly what we're looking for they're taking this sort of foreign subject of sports and they're explaining it to people who might not understand it and they're trying to be funny which they are he's like we gotta get these guys to come in and that's how we got called in to do the show or to ad- audition for the show and then we got it but it, it's kind of a rare situation where it works out like that in this industry and, and we- so we shot all six of them Six. it started out as being just a, a pilot that was for internal use only, that they were going to shoot one not, just even not even a finished Version like a rough cut of what it was, and then they were like, "Let's do six of these." And so now we're waiting. Hopefully, April it will air. It will air start in April, and we'll see what how it does. I mean, part of me says, "Look, it's probably you never know how it's going to do." The shows that really rate well on History Channel are like Swamp People and Pawn Stars and American Pickers, and this is not that. Okay, this isn't someone finding a Civil War musket in their attic, and which, by the way, those shows are brilliant. I mean, those shows are like Redneck Antiques Roadshow. It's like literally. Literally like I found this jar in my closet and what's it worth and like you literally I've been on flights watching those shows and cannot stop watching for hours and hours because I'm like I want to know what is, is it worth it real? is it real I mean so you get best. a beginning a middle then they make you wait through the break and then you find out what happens and it just goes over and over again it resets and it's kind of genius and so those shows just draw tons of people because that's kind of mindless really great entertainment solid like let's just watch this and turn our brains off ours is a little different ours is comedy it requires attention focus learning it's just it's different so it's yeah it requires people we'll see how it. it does there may be a ceiling as to how how well this show can do but i love it and would love to continue doing it and and feel yeah like we're proud of them so far as, I, as I put scientists. it this way if this is the thing that people know us from you mentioned like cheap before in Scarborough country and you know we've done entourage and done some other things that people really know us from but if this is the thing and history does pretty well their, their numbers are pretty good if this is the thing that most people know us from I'll be happy I'll be ecstatic I mean that's all we've ever wanted to do in our career is make sure that the next step of whatever we do is something that if people saw it we wouldn't be embarrassed about it
3: well Randy Sklar, Jason Sklar, the Sklar Brothers Thank you so much for joining me on Bullseye
4: Thanks That's for having us Having us.
3: Randy and Jason Sklar, the Sklar Brothers Have a comedy CD It is called Hender Sons and Daughters They're also the hosts of Bro Country uh, Which you can find online at Earwolf.com Every week on Bullseye, we close with a cultural suggestion from me to you. It's The Outshot. In 2000, Curb Your Enthusiasm premiered on HBO. In 2001, The Office premiered on the BBC. They were at the forefront of a comedy revolution, twisting the knife of social awkwardness until all you could do was laugh. But those shows weren't without precedent. In 1997, a veteran comedy writer named Ken Finkelman launched a CBC show called The Newsroom. Finkelman wrote, directed, and starred in the show, playing the news director of an unnamed Canadian TV news show. That character, George Findlay, is one of the most brilliantly horrible men ever to appear on television. George is the kind of man whose concern for immigrants correlates directly to his concern for his BMW.
4: The parking guy told me he'd meet with me.
1: He will squeeze you in tomorrow on his break, but he can't promise anything.
4: If all the spots are gone, how busy can he be? What does he mean he'll squeeze me in?
1: Well, apparently he has to re-stencil names on spaces all day.
4: They get their names stenciled on the spaces? I'm a news director. I don't even get a space. I have to park across the street for seven bucks a day, 15 when there's a ball game. The guy that parks my car is an Ethiopian doctor. That's the truth. This is not what they're trained to do. This is what's wrong with our immigration policy. They should let these guys practice medicine. I'd rather have them operate on my heart than park my car. Do you know the three scariest words an Ethiopian doctor can say to a BMW owner? Huh? Do you? Leave the keys.
3: George isn't a bloviator like Ricky Gervais was. He's an avoider, a dancer, willing to go to any length to avoid the uncomfortable, and almost always failing
2: his agent spoke to you about a lunch and he wants to set up a time and place
4: not now okay is this the announcer with Lou Gehrig's disease yes I'm aware of his condition and I'll talk to him later all right well when I don't know when
2: later he's kind of old I feel sorry for him
4: I have my reasons for not wanting to get pushed into this lunch
2: okay he's an over-the-hill announcer who can do nothing for your career except diminish your reputation as a player by being seen with you in public ding 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 So you guys think I'm afraid to take this lunch? Well, I think if it was Lou Gehrig with Bill Coogan's disease rather than the other way around, you'd take the lunch.
4: Exactly. Okay. Book a reservation for two. Cafe Brussels.
2: It's a restaurant where everyone big in this business eats. Satisfied? I'm impressed. Now, I'm not a person without feelings. Right? But this dog. When is this dog going to die? Really? I mean, what's the prognosis on this dog? If you
3: haven't spent some time with George, you owe it to yourself. The Newsroom is on DVD. That's it for Bullseye this week. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones, our producer, Julia Smith. Nick White is our editor. Our intern is Justin Morissette. Our theme music is Huddle Formation by The Go Team, thanks to The Go Team and their label, Memphis Industries, for letting us use that. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org, on Twitter, bullseye or on facebook at facebook.com slash bullseye with jesse thorne and remember all great radio hosts have a signature sign
1: production of bullseye with jesse thorne is supported in part by the menswear blog put this on Presenting the Put This On Gentlemen's Association. Members receive a handmade pocket handkerchief in the mail every sixty days. More information at putthison.com and by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com.
3: Support for this program comes from this station and Public Radio International stations nationwide and is made possible in part by the PRI Program Fund, whose contributors include the Ford Foundation and the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation.
4: PRI, Public Radio International.